Welcome to Teaching Thursdays, a collection of sermons and teaching series by Kevin Morris from BetterBibleReading.com. Our last episode of Teaching Thursdays, we finished our series through the book of 1 Peter, and I explained that we're getting ready to begin a new study series very soon. And we'll do that very soon, but in the meantime, I wanted to share on this episode a sermon that I've recently delivered. Now, this is different from typical because I didn't deliver the sermon at my church or at any church for that matter. This was actually a project that I had to complete for school. And so we were all assigned different uh, biblical texts and we had to present a sermon uh, following certain guidelines that we were given, certain time length and a lot of stuff that I won't bore you with. Uh, But the end result was a sermon on 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. So on this episode of Teaching Thursdays, I wanted to share that with all of you. If you want to see the video version of that, you can go to betterbiblereading.com to watch this episode. Otherwise, you can just listen on your audio version. But either way, thank you so much for your continual support and listenership of Better Bible Reading. And if you want to find even more content than this particular episode, please consider checking out Better Bible Reading. Without further ado, here's the sermon. Our sermon text comes to us from 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. I'd like to read those for us before we begin. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him whoever loves God, must also love his brother. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the glorious truth contained in it. And we pray that you would help us to consider this word given to us, how it applies specifically to our lives today, and that you might help us to greatly appreciate the love you have for us and to show that love in our love for others. We ask this in Christ's name we pray. Amen. How many of you have a perfect destination? Maybe it's one that you have visited numerous times. Maybe it's one that's on your bucket list that you have yet to visit, but you hope to get there one day. Well, I have many, but one particular destination is not one that I haven't made it to yet. It's actually one that's less than an hour from my doorstep down in St. Augustine, Florida. It's a beautiful place, beautiful architecture. It's boasted as the oldest city in the continental United States. And so when you get that when you get down there you're met with beautiful architecture right there on the water, castles, old masonry buildings, and one building which is the oldest fort. It's even the oldest building in the oldest city in the United States. And my wife and I have a special appreciation for that fort 
because it is where I propose to her. And so it's very common for us, whether the two of us or with our children, uh, to load up and head down to St. Augustine to appreciate uh, somewhere that is great for walking around, enjoying the scenery, and for my wife and I, as somewhat of a romantic place because it's where I proposed to her one night as the sun was setting right alongside the exterior of the fort on a Black Friday of all days. We were down there, I proposed to her, she said yes, and the rest is history. It's common for us to associate names such as St. Augustine with a place. You have an idea of a destination, perhaps a past destination, perhaps a future destination. But sometimes we fail to appreciate that such names as St. Augustine aren't just thought up out of thin air, but actually have to do with an actual person, such as St. Augustine. St. Augustine, if you're not from the South, then Augustine. Perhaps the most influential Christian in church history outside of the apostles writes in perhaps his most influential book, The Confessions. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. Now, what Augustine has for us in that passage is our experience of salvation. Outside of Christ, we have experienced this restlessness that the world cannot satisfy us, that even the best destination in this world cannot satisfy us. We long for something greater. And when we meet Christ, our heart is finally put to rest. We can rest in God. But Augustine not only speaks in that quotation of our current rest in God or a past experience of rest in God, he points us even further to our final destination of eternal rest in God. And this final destination of eternal rest is precisely what the Apostle John speaks to us in this passage, 1 John 4, 17 through 21. Then the big idea that John has for us is that our experience of confidence in the day of judgment is proven by our expression of love. If you want to see how this idea of love relates to confidence and relates to final rest and satisfaction in God, then let's consider it by explaining the first point that John has for us in verses 17 and 18, that we should have confidence because we are planted in love. We think about what Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount to his uh, gatherers, his disciples, and just the crowd in general, that Jesus teaches this analogy of fruit and tree. Specifically, what Jesus is teaching in that passage is for his listeners to understand the difference between a true and a false teacher. And Jesus says that you can understand a false teacher, i.e. the tree, by the fruit they produce, and vice versa. Well, John, who was among the listening crowd when Jesus gave this Sermon on the Mount, utilizes, even though it's implicit here, utilizes this idea of the fruit in the tree. He introduces them in a way that we could actually make this analogy of the fruit and the tree in this idea of love 
and judgment and confidence and fear. We can say that we have confidence because we're planted in love as Christians. The fruit of confidence comes from the tree of love. So you have a tree, let's call it love, and the way that you can identify something belonging to that tree is the confidence that it is produced as fruit. On the other hand, if somebody belongs to not the tree of love, but the tree of fear, then the ultimate fruit that's going to be produced is punishment, and it will wilt away as a result. John has us thinking about this final day of judgment, and he's asking the question, by way of association, which one do we belong to? Which one do you belong to? And how can you know? Well, we can know what tree we belong to by the fruit that's going to be produced. We could say it the other way, that the fruit that's going to be produced or experienced by us firsthand is going to testify to the tree that we belong to. John wants us to understand what it means to belong to God. And he says that this confidence in the day of judgment is the fruit of us being planted and associated with that tree of love. So that's the destination that John has in mind for us. That's where he wants us to be going in our minds, where he wants us to be thinking of. So he gives us the destination, much like going to St. Augustine or going to your favorite place. But in order to get to that favorite place, you have to know what road to take. You have to know what path to follow. We might say, how do we get to that destination of confidence today? We might want to get there eventually, but how can we actually even experience it today? Well, this brings in mind for us the idea of a roadmap, and that's precisely what John gives to us in the second point of this text. If 17 and 18 are introducing this destination, then verse 19 introduces the roadmap that we can go by and that we can understand how to get there. I quoted from Augustine already, but I can't help but quote from uh, another part of his confessions. If maybe the most popular quotation was that one that I gave just a moment ago from the very first paragraph of the book, later on is another memorable quotation from Augustine in his confessions where he says this, He loves you too little, who loves anything together with you, which he loves not for your sake. Now, we could misconstrue what Augustine says here to basically say, if we love anything equal with God or greater than God, then we're loving it too much. Ironically, what Augustine is actually saying is that if we love anything equally with God or greater than God, it's not that we're loving it too much. It's that we're loving it too little. We're loving it improperly. We're not enjoying things as they were meant to be enjoyed and loved, and that is in and through God himself, who is love. We might say that John makes the same point. Specifically, in verse 19, we love because he first loved us, is to say that we take our cue of what love is and how it's expressed first from God himself. We love because he first loved us. 
Here is our roadmap that John gives to us in the passage, that we should model our love from God himself. Now, how do we do that? Well, God defines love for us by demonstrating it to us. He first loved us. Now, certainly John has in mind here that God is love, which he says elsewhere in this letter. But even more specifically, we could say that John probably has in mind the most quoted verse in all of the Bible in American evangelicalism, and that is John 3.16. Explaining God's love, John writes that, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son for us. We have in this expression of God's love, not an empty, skeletal love, but one that has substance to it. We might say when John introduces this idea of love, he's speaking of nothing less than the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, of God giving us his son, that we might believe in him and have eternal life. This is the love that God has demonstrated to us. And likewise, if God has demonstrated this saving, transforming love to us, John concludes in the very same verse that we love. We could say it in the opposite way. Because he first loved us, we love. The necessary consequence of experiencing God's love is expressing God's love. Our love is the necessary consequence of being loved by God in this wonderful way. But if God wants us to pursue confidence with this idea of love as our roadmap, getting to that final destination of confidence, here's our only fitting response, and that is to follow the roadmap. Verses 20 and 21 demonstrate this to us. You know, it reminds me of a story of two brothers. Two brothers who were born in a wide open land. They essentially had the world at their fingertips. And as these two brothers grew up, it became time for them to choose their profession. And one brother chose to be a shepherd, while the other brother chose to be a farmer. This worked out well for them in their geography because they had great opportunity to work together. Their vocations actually served to benefit one another. But one day, these two brothers were out in the field, and the farmer had contempt for his other brother, the shepherd. And that brother rose up and struck down his brother, killing him in cold blood. This farmer ended the life of the shepherd out of jealousy and hatred. These two brothers professed to know God, even professed to love God. But this demonstration of hatred and murder proved that the farmer didn't really love God, but was only an empty professor. Now, the sobering fact of this story is that it's not a fairy tale. It's not a fable. It's actually the account of the first sibling interaction in the Bible, Cain and Abel, where Cain kills his brother Abel. John actually takes this story and presents it to us earlier on in this letter as an example of how we should not be, saying that Cain, who was of the evil one, killed his brother, and we should not be like Cain. We should be like Abel. Now, both of these brothers, we read the account in Genesis, we know that they both 
brought offerings to God. They understood who God was. They understood this idea of worship, of what is owed to God. And yet Cain proves, like Judas, that he was only an empty professor, saying that he loved God, but demonstrating the opposite. John says to us, If we say we love God and hate our brother, we are a liar. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. What we have here is an exhortation to us that that final destination of confidence has a road map included. To get to that place of confidence requires the expression of love. To understand that love, we have to experience it first from God, and we take our cue from God. And then God, having allowed us to experience his love firsthand and transforming us and granting us the Holy Spirit, then says to walk in his ways, to be holy as he is holy, to love as we have been loved. That's the name of the game for us in the Christian life. We might say it this way, that our love will only reach up to God if it reaches out to others. And we think here that this commandment, really a summary of all of what God's moral law teaches, to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, is now being re-understood by way of this Christian life that we have. That we're not following this pattern by way of legalism, but we're following it as the necessary consequence of being saved and being conformed into God's image. That's John's point. This commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now John isn't inventing this final point out of thin air. I can't help but think that John essentially sits down and writes here for us a memoir of those final hours with his Lord and Savior in the upper room. That passage in John 13 through 17, where we have what's called the upper room discourse, where Jesus sits his disciples down and teaches them what love looks like. He washes their feet, he shares a meal with them, he reveals to them the the future comfort of the Holy Spirit that will be given to them. And Jesus says this to his disciples, that the way that the world will be able to identify them, the way that they'll be able to prove that they are in fact Jesus' disciples, is their love for one another. And Jesus says this as well, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So what we see here in in one sense is that this idea of love is somewhat of a litmus test for our Christian profession. If we profess to be a Christian, the presence of love, the experience of love, the expression of love is what proves that we are in fact Jesus' disciples. But this commandment is not somewhat of a stipulation that you have to love, and then you'll be a disciple, or that you have to love, and then you'll have confidence at the day of judgment. But instead, 
that this confidence at the day of judgment comes from this inward enjoyment of God's love that spills over as love for one another. So if that's our final destination, if that's the roadmap that we're given, and then we're commanded to follow that roadmap by John here at the end of this passage, the question arises, how do we do that? What does that look like? Well, I can think of three particular ways that this would apply to us. It might apply to some of us in a certain scenario. But if we take somewhat of a broad view of this application, we can see that it applies to all of us. In one sense, we could say that this love that John has in mind is love for the world. You think of the way that the church, as an institution, is a witness to the world of who God is. Oftentimes, you think of mission trips, you think of outreaches, you think of mercy ministries, where we're caring for those who don't profess faith in Jesus Christ. But we're using these as an evangelistic way of sharing the gospel so that they might come to Christ through our expression and demonstration of God's love. God works in us his love and then loves the world through his church. This could certainly be a way that this applies, is that John has in mind a love for the world. That would be a wonderful way of applying the love of God in John 3.16, in us and through us, this love that God has for the world. But I can't help but also think when John says here of loving our brother and taking his cue from Jesus' teaching in the upper room, that his disciples' love for one another will prove their identity, that we also have love among Christians. And so this application would be for us to love and ensure that we are loving one another in the church. Churches, as many of you may know, are oftentimes caricatured as places of division, places of disagreement. When people get angry and leave a church because of what somebody said and what somebody did, people have bad experiences in the church. And that shouldn't be the case, because the way that we are to be identified is love for one another. John urges us to do this. Now, sometimes a situation may happen that may require us to worship at a different place than where we are because of what happened or what somebody said. But typically, we should be people more than anyone else in this world to strive for peace and unity. That only happens when love is present. That only happens when we forgive others as we have been forgiven. Where we seek to be at peace with others because we have peace with God. So we have love for the world. We have love among Christians in the church. And finally, we've worked our way broadly. We're getting more specific. Finally, we might even say love in the biological or marital sense. Martin Luther was famous for saying that our command to love our neighbor should start in the marriage. That your spouse 
is your nearest neighbor, and therefore your spouse should be the greatest recipient of your love for neighbor. We might take that and even say that we could apply it to spouse. We could also apply it to children. We could apply it to parents, to siblings. That our love should not only go out to the world, but stop or be contradictory within our own household. Or that we should do a great job of loving other believers, loving the world, but somehow our spouse gets the short end of the stick, or our children see a darker side of us that the rest of the world doesn't have to see. It shouldn't be that way. John's command for us to love one another is so exhaustive that nobody's beyond scope of this love. To show it to the world, show it to other Christians, and show it to those closest to us, those who live under the same roof as us. This is perhaps the toughest, because that's where all of our flaws are typically seen. But this command for us to love is comprehensive. But so is the hope of the confidence that we will have on the last day because of the love we have. So we could say it this way. If you are loved, love. God has loved you. He commands you to show that love to others. And indeed, to show it to everyone. And this is how we will have confidence at the Day of Judgment for this love that has been experienced and as a result, expressed.